We are nearing the end of our study in 1 Samuel. Um, We're finishing out preaching through the book of Samuel. And today we have an especially dark text. So let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 28 and see what the Lord has for us to learn from this text today. This is God's word. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Asak said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw, pardon me, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there's a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land? Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel asked, said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke for me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. 
The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now therefore you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him and he listened to their words. So he rose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Let's pray. God, thank you that every part of your word has been inspired by you and is good and profitable for our instruction. God, I pray that this sobering passage would be instructive for us today. God, I pray that we would see, Lord, how, how we are to relate to you, God. And I pray as well that we would be sobered and, and warned by the life of Saul it, it ends in such a dark night. But God, I pray as well that we would look to you and have hope. Father, I pray for me as I preach this morning. I pray for everyone who hears that you would enable us to all give wor- attention to your words and that, Lord, you would be with us, and Holy Spirit, you would, you would even now just fill us with your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. What if I told you that tonight would be the last night of your life? What if I told you that the end was at hand, that this is your final hour? Would you live any differently? If so, Why? Why would you live differently? How are you living now that you would change it? What would, you, what would you do if you could save yourself from death potentially? Would you do it? And what would you be willing to do? What would you be willing to do if there was a way to save yourself from dying here on this earth, no matter what it meant? In the account that we just read, it, it is Saul's last night on the earth. Um, it, it's, it's possibly the darkest, or at least one of the darkest texts in the entire Bible. And it's, it's one of not only the most gloomy, but the most powerful texts as well. It's one of the most unusual, hard-hitting passages in the Bible. What makes it more strange is that the genre that it's written in, in the account that it's written, it, it's not a fairy tale, it's not a story, it's not... It's not written to be like something. It is an actual account of what really transpired. It's an account of Saul's last night and Samuel really appearing. And what we see in Saul is this this dark night of the soul. We see this dark night of the soul of Saul. and, And we see that when the end is near, fear and disobedience, it leads to death and And we can learn from Saul's example there is that when the end is near, his fear and his disobedience, it leads ultimately to death. But it doesn't need to be so, even though for Saul it was. 
And we see for Saul very clearly the end is obviously near. And we see several different signs in verses 1 through 4, then in verse 6 as well, how the end is, is ominous, it's looming, right? The Lord's anointed, think about this, David is against him. And in the passage, it doesn't give any indication that David doesn't really intend to go and fight against Saul. There's no indications here. There's actually no indications later as well that David did not intend to go with Achish and fight against Saul. And so Saul is facing the possibility of fighting against the Lord's anointed. The end is near. Achish had told David, he says, you're going to fight with me against the Philistines. And David said, very well. And so he goes with him. Now, you know, sympathetically, we can say, well, maybe he didn't really plan to. Maybe he planned to, to rebel. But we don't know that. We're never told that. We're never given that indication. But David's opposing Saul, and Saul probably knows that. On top of that, we're reminded at the very beginning of this passage that the narrator wants to draw our attention to the fact that the end is near, and he says, Samuel is dead. He has long since been buried. He was buried in Ramah, and he is dead, and there's no possibility of hearing the words of God for Saul anymore. The end is near. He tells this interesting piece of news as well that we've not seen before in Samuel. He says, Saul had put all the mediums and the necromancers out of the land as well. Apparently, at one point in time, Saul had done what was right according to God's word. You know, back in Deuteronomy 18, God explicitly had told his people, um, he commanded to him, he says, when you come into the land, in Deuteronomy 18, verses 9, he says, that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or is a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium. And he goes on. He says, because these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out from you. And so Saul had put them out because God's people would have nothing to do with sorcery. God's people have nothing to do with the evil works of darkness, with mediums, with necromancers, with seances and fortune telling or omens or astrologers or things like that. The prohibition of God was complete. And so Saul at one point in time had had begun well and he had put them out of the land But now we see at some point in his reign, Saul turned and he here is is actively seeking out the abomination of the Lord. And then we see something else that indicates the end is at hand. You see the Philistines are coming. And in verse 4 it says, all the Philistines have gathered their forces. They've gathered from all five of the Philistine cities. They've gone up and they've camped out in Shunem. It's right right below the the valley of Megiddo. And they they camped out there and they are waiting. And it says that when Saul goes up to the Mount of Gilboa and he sees them, his heart was terrified within him. Why? Because their force was so great. And he he was fearful. The Philistines are coming, and he was concerned by their forces that were gathered. But here's the worst thing of all that, that gives us this foreboding sense, this, this awful heavy sense in this passage. This passage doesn't let us have any light moments, really. And it gives us this, this terrible line in, in, in verse 6. Look down in your Bibles, if you will. Look down in verse 6. It says, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. You see, Saul here, he's inquiring of the Lord when it suits him. 
He's inquiring of the Lord, not because he's really wanting to pursue a relationship with God, to follow God, to obey God. He's inquiring of the Lord because he's fearful, and he sees these armies, and he sees that the end is near, and so he's kind of out of a desperation, this this foxhole kind of mentality. He's going and inquiring of God. He's desperate, but we can see his true intentions. He's really trying to use God to his advantage. How do we know that? Well, when he doesn't hear from God, does he... Does he double down and say, God, no matter what, whether I hear from you or not, I'm going to seek you, I'm going to obey you, I'm going to do what your word has already revealed, I'm going to follow you no matter what comes. No, he doesn't do that. He, he's obviously inquiring of the Lord for his own convenience because the very next thing he does is he turns to a necromancer, to a medium. And, but, but God knows Saul's heart. He won't be played. And he won't only be used when it's convenient for people, when it suits their needs. And, and so when Saul inquires when it's convenient to manipulate God, God doesn't answer. Notice it doesn't say Saul was seeking to repent. Now he saw he was in deep trouble and he's looking for God to bail him out, to get him out of his jam, but not really to follow him, not really to obey him. He wasn't looking to to follow God, he was looking to manipulate God. You know, James in the New Testament talks about this this kind of seeking or asking for God. He says, you know, when you ask, you ask with the wrong motives. You, he says, you ask, you don't receive. In James 3, it says, you ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And, and Saul is asking wrongly, and so God is silent. That's a terrifying idea, isn't it? The idea that, that God would be silent. Saul inquires of God, it says he sees no Guidance, no dreams, no prophecy, nothing, only silence on all fronts. And First Chronicles kind of lets us in on the fact that he wasn't really inquiring of God. It, it gives us more insight. In First Chronicles 10, it says, so, so Saul died for what? His breach of faith, it tells us in First Chronicles 10, verse 13. It says, he broke faith with the Lord and that he did not keep the command of the Lord. And he consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. So we know that Saul was not really seeking the Lord and guidance from him. He was inquiring of God, but he wasn't really wanting to be led by God. You know, some people can find themselves there today as well. You know, you've ever, you ever been to the place where you've wanted to know what to do from God, but you've not really wanted to obey God? This passage serves as a warning to, to you if you're there, if you've been in that place. This passage is meant to be a sobering passage. So what led to Saul's breach of faith? What led to his disobedience? Well, we can see he was ruled by fear, not faith, but not the fear of the Lord, but fear of what other people thought of him. So we see that fear leads to downfall. Look in verse 5, if you will. Look down at verse 5. It says, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, it says what? He was afraid in his heart, trembled, Greatly, He was motivated by fear. Saul looked on what he could see, and Saul feared losing his kingdom. So when he beheld the army of the Philistines, he was afraid. And that was something that was very consistent for Saul his entire life. He was, he was consistently led by fear. You, you remember back to when Saul was, was first going to be inaugurated king over Israel? And Samuel goes, and he talks about Saul and then they can't find him. Why? Because Saul is down hiding in the baggage. He's, he's fearful. He's fearful of the position. And, and we see that fear dominated him from the outset of his reign. He, 
not only hid himself among the baggage, but he was constantly afraid of what people thought about him. And things started to go badly for him very shortly after his inauguration. You think Saul's going to do great, and he starts off great, and things are going pretty well. But then all of a sudden, Saul sees that, hey, Samuel's not coming to do the sacrifice that he said. And it's been three days, and the Philistines are out there, and he's worried now. And he's thinking, what will the people think? And so he sacrifices because he fears what the people will do because people are leaving. So he's like, i got to do something to appease them. I'm, I'm fearing people's reputation. I've got to do something to appease them. So Saul sacrifices and disobeys God and, and his fear leads to his downfall. And then later on in life, Saul was told by Samuel to go and to wipe out the Malachites completely, to utterly destroy them, not leave anything, any, anybody standing, to not, not leave any, any spoil, to, to eradicate it all. But Saul, he admits later on in, in, in 1 Samuel 15, he gives an account himself of why he disobeyed God. And he said to Samuel, he says, I've sinned for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words. And then Saul gives this insight into his own heart. He says, because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Fear led to Saul's downfall and disobedience. His life was marked by fear. It was marked by what, what people thought about him. Fear that he wouldn't be accepted, fear that he'd be rejected led to his demise. And we see Saul here. He is fearful again. He's not looking to God for his deliverance. He's not trusting in God. He's not looking beyond the circumstances and saying, what can man do to me now? My hopes in, in, in Jehovah, in Yahweh, my hopes in God who delivers all. He's saying, no, I'm fearful, and if God won't get me what I want, then I'm going to turn to any other means I can. Where do you turn when you are fearful? How do you respond when you fear the outcome, when you fear what people think of you, when you fear circumstances, when you're opposed? Saul feared, and his fear drove him to disobey, and it was something that was an abomination to the Lord, and he sought a medium and a witch. And so we see in the, in the life of Saul that, that disobedience really is an abomination. It's not, just, it's not just fear that leads to his downfall, but it's disobedience that's motivated by fear, and this disobedience itself is an abomination. Saul goes directly against the Lord's commands. And how do we know that Saul wasn't desiring to please God when he inquired of God? Because he, he immediately turns away from seeking God. You know, there's, there was a time in David's life when, when David felt like God was not there. When David felt like God was not answering him. And he cries out to God and he says, you know, why are you not hearing me? But he continues to cry out to God and to throw himself on the mercy of God. And that's not what Saul's doing here he was willing to disobey God's clear word in order to get what he wanted. He was willing to disobey God's clear direction, God's clear word, to get what he wanted. And he was so desperate, he so his rebellion against God by seeking out a medium to guide him. And so he asks his servants, and he knew better because he had already put the, the mediums and the necromancers out of land. He says, could you tell me? Could you tell me where is there a medium? Where is there a necromancer? And his servants, obviously they've not left that practice. And they tell him about this medium at Endor, a couple miles north where the army was encamped. 
I got sidetracked a little bit by indoors, not a moon, it's not a place in Middle Earth. But Saul hears of this witch in Endor, and he plans to go and seek her direction. How awful that the king of God's people would be brought so low as to seek out an abominable practice forbidden by God. You know, at times when God seems silent, it is never okay for us to go against what God's clear word has said. And God, for us today, he's not silent. We have his word, so there's never a reason for us to disobey God's word. He has spoken, and we can trust God's word for us today and trust that he leads us and guides us even when we feel like we don't hear him. We can rest and trust in his spoken word and his written word. In this awful scene, this tragic scene, Saul reaches the bottom of his moral and personal abyss. But it started earlier with his continued patterns of disobedience. He, he continually disobeyed God. It started small. It started small with him making a sacrifice to God in a way that wasn't permissible. And then it ended with direct disobedience to God's word. But even at the very end, you get this idea that, that if Saul would just repent, if Saul would repent and turn, but he, he doesn't do that. And he doesn't want to be discovered. He, he fears what people think of him. He disguises himself. He goes into this woman by night so as not to be seen. Saul is now at the, at the lowest point. He's, not only has he disobeyed God by sacrificing, he's He's disobeyed God by not wiping out the Malachites because he feared people. Then he wipes out all the priests of the Lord. He goes against the priesthood, the very means that God's provided for him to come and be atoned. And and Saul wipes out the priests and he goes against the Lord's anointed and he goes against Samuel. And now finally he goes against God himself. And he asks for her to conduct a seance to, to bring up the spirit of whomever he asks. And boy, if you're an Israelite and you were reading or hearing this account read, you would have been horrified hearing that the king, the leader of Israel, he's going to seek out a foreign god through a seance, through a medium. And he seals his own fate since it was really clear in Deuteronomy that the the fate of pursuing a medium is is death. The, the, The sentence for that is death. And so we see in this final act, that there is a sentence of death hanging over. There's a sentence of death hanging over. This is a bleak and dark passage. The woman herself, she reminds Saul, she says, you know, Saul put out the mediums and necromancers, and and anybody who consults them is going to be put to death. And she reminds Saul. Saul gets a reminder from this ungodly woman. And even then he pursues. And there's this, this pending death sentence, and he and then he does something really astounding in a passage. Look down in the Bible. She, she says, you know, Saul has put all the mediums and necromancers out and said, why are you laying a trap for me? You're, you're trying to trick me so that you can deceive me and put me to death. And Saul does something that's really astounding. He ironically swears to this medium by the name of the Lord God, the living God of Israel. <laughs> There's some serious irony going on. And he assures her by the living God, this demonic woman. And then the text tells us that he asks her to bring up Samuel. 
And there's something interesting to note when, when she actually sees the spirit of Samuel coming up out of the ground. It says she screams. She cries out in a loud voice. She's really startled here. Evidently, either this was abnormal from her, her usual practice of calling up spirits of the dead, or she realized this was a spirit sent from God. Whatever reason, she was shocked. She knew that this was a genuine article, and she knew that this must be Saul. And so she screams, she says, why have you deceived me? You're Saul. And she's terrified. She probably knew that if God had sent Samuel to her, then Saul must be for her. And so Saul asked her to describe him, apparently from the description, and then the, the robes there are priestly robes. And so Saul knows that it's Samuel. So Saul bows down on the ground to Samuel. He didn't obey Samuel's word in his life. How hypocritical now that in, in his last night he pretends. And somehow, this is a, is a real account, there's no hint in the story that it wasn't really Samuel. The narrator is really writing that this was Samuel who came up and spoke to Saul. And he asked Saul, why have you disturbed me and brought me up? And Saul says, the Philistines, they're warring against me, and God has turned away from me, and he won't answer. And so he summons Samuel, and Samuel basically replies and says, why in the world are you asking me if Yahweh himself has turned away from you and become your enemy? Why would you ask me? And then God tells him that what God had prophesied about Saul's end was coming to pass today. And he says, because you've disobeyed God, his clear word that the Lord was taking his kingdom away and giving it to his neighbor David. And then look down in verse 19. He says, moreover, in verse 19, the Lord will give Israel also with you. This is devastating. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines and then listen to the pronouncement of judgment. There's this death sentence hanging over him. He says, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. There is a death sentence on you and on the army of Israel because of your disobedience. And by the way, when he says you'll be with me, it's, it's not a reference to the fact that, that Saul is, is went to be in paradise. It's that you'll be with me in, in the place of death, in, in Sheol. So through Samuel, God pronounces Saul's death sentence. And it terrifies Saul. Could you imagine? Imagine, put yourself in Saul's shoes for a moment. Imagine what it must have been like to be Saul. Imagine... The Lord's anointed has turned against you. Imagine that the Philistines are encamped against you, that the prophet Samuel is dead, that there seems to be no hope. You inquire of God, and he is silent. And then Samuel tells you that if God has turned against you, why do you pursue me? And, and by the way, you and your sons are going to be dead tomorrow. Can you imagine the fear that must have gripped Saul? But even then, he doesn't fall down and repent. And, 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 I, and, I, and I like to think that at any point, Saul potentially could have repented. And yet he doesn't. He doesn't repent. He falls down in fear and he does nothing. He doesn't turn to seek God and he doesn't cry out and say, 
Woe is me, I've sinned, please forgive me. He's terrified and he falls down and, and there's this, this play on words, the tall Saul fell full length and he was completely humbled before God and God's servant and he falls and he's so weak it says he can't get up. He was, he was absolutely catatonic with fear and dread and knows something telling in verses 21 to 23. The woman says to Saul, she says, I've obeyed your voice, now you obey me. She actually tells the king of Israel to obey her. That's astounding. She says, listen to my, I obeyed your words, now you listen to my words. You obey me. And she prepares this supper. At first he refuses and he relents. And she prepares this this feast, this, this last meal, this fattened calf fed on grain and she prepares these beautiful steaks for him and and the men there and it's this sentence of death is hanging over him it's like the last meal before a man on death row but this food has been prepared by a witch and he obeys this witch and he listens to her and he eats of her food and it's the ceiling of his fate, and it's the height of abomination. He's nourished by a witch on his last night. What a foreboding. This is not one of those passages you go to to feel good about yourself. This is a passage in the Bible, much like other passages, that is very sobering. Makes you consider your life and what you're living for. Makes you consider whether you're pursuing God for God himself or to get something out of God to accomplish your ends. And then we witness this last supper of Saul. That's what we're witnessing here, Saul's last supper. It's the last supper of a rebel, the last supper of a condemned man. And then the chapter ends with Saul and his men. It's, it's, it's even more foreboding. He goes out into the night. And that's where the chapter closes. And the author is giving us this this imagery, this picture, not just of Saul physically going out into the night, but Saul, he goes out into the darkness. What a powerful passage. We can learn a lot from a passage like this from the life of Saul. And one of the most obvious applications that we can learn from a passage like this is to be warned. I think that's the intent that God has through a passage like this is, it's a warning passage. And, and I, I was wrestling when I was preparing for the message and I was thinking, you know, I don't really want to preach this. It's, it's, it's a very sobering passage. It's not a, a feel-good passage. It doesn't leave you lighthearted. This is a passage that has weight to it. And, and yet I feel like God would have that. He, he has passages like that in his word to, to give us of warning. Warning not to, to seal our fate, but warning away from ending up like Saul. And he says, be warned, really. Being, beginning well doesn't mean one will end well. That's what we see in this passage. At the very beginning of this passage, it says, Saul put out the necromancers and the mediums from the, from the land of Israel. He began well. But oh, the irony, he does not end well. He began well. He puts out the necromancers. He seems to do what's good. He seems, he, you know, Saul... Here's something crazy. He was filled with the Holy Spirit in some manner, at least given the Holy Spirit for a time. Saul, he joyfully prophesied with God's prophets. He went and he did good works. 
But beginning well doesn't mean that one will end well. He started out obeying God's word, but he was ruled by fear and what people thought of him. And he chose what other people thought of him above what God said. In the end, when he was faced with this prospect of God not responding to him, he doesn't fall on his face in repentance. He turns to even deeper disobedience. And, and really, we're meant to, to, to read this passage and think, what, a, what are we living for? Are, are we, did we, be, we who be, might have begun well, are we pursuing the Lord still for for his sake, no matter what the cost, no matter what it means to us, are we, who are we fearing? Are we fearing God? Are we fearing what people think about us? What will we do when God's apparently silent? You know, even David had those times where, but David in the Psalms, he relentlessly pursues the Lord even when God seems silent. He pours out his lament to God, trust in God no matter what. Silence from God can be deafening. You know, I've had those periods in my life where I feel like I'm not hearing from God. I think everybody can experience those points in time where you feel like, where is God? But it's those times where we're meant to say, God, I'm not going to give in to my feelings and what I see, Lord. I'm going to have a faith that believes in you for what you have already said and trusts in you no matter what. But silence from God can be deafening. What will you do when silence from God comes? Saul now longer, now could no longer hear from God, and he was opposed by God. What a sobering, terrifying, absolutely lonely place to be, isn't it? Could you imagine if you were in Saul's shoes? Saul's disobedience reveals what and who he was living for, but for the believer, obedience to God, it, it, it's not the means by which God loves us, but it reveals our love for God. That's why Jesus in John, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's why as a Christian, it's important for us to obey God because it's a sign of our love for God. It's not the means by which God loves us, but it's the means by which we love God. See, if you've put your faith and your trust in God, and if he's made you alive in him, obedience is a mark that God, you know what? I'm going to submit my will to yours because you have loved me and I love you. And I'm going to live for you. It reveals who we love and whether we're living for God or ourselves. And we can also see in Saul that, that seeking guidance other than God, it leads to death. And you might think for a second, well, I, I can't relate to Saul. I've never sought a medium or a necromancer. or a, a, I've never been to a seance. I've never had tarot card readings. And I've never looked at astrology or omens or things like that. Or, or maybe you can relate to that. For those who can't relate... Though here's something telling that Samuel actually told us a few chapters previously. You see, Saul died because he was ultimately unfaithful to God and didn't keep God's commandments. And in, in 1 Samuel 15, if you, if you think, wait, I can't really relate to Saul. I've never sought a witch. I've never sought out a medium. Well, in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and an outward show of obedience. And when you sing and you, you, you pretend to worship God and outwardly has, has God great delight in those things? He says, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. You know, whether you're giving of your money or not, or you're appearing to do good works, 
He says, to obey God is better than sacrifice and to listen to the fatter rams. Now listen here. He says, for rebellion, disobedience to God, is what? As the sin of divination or witchcraft, depending on the version you have. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Boy, we're all Saul, aren't we? What hope is there for us then, right? We're all Saul. We've all disobeyed. We've all rebelled against God. We've all not obeyed. And he says rebellion is as a sin of divination. And boy, there's a death sentence hanging all over all those who disobey and, and commit divination. But you know, there's some other subtle forms of, of witchcraft. Maybe you wouldn't call it witchcraft. Or subtle forms of looking to things other than God for guidance. Or maybe subtle ways we seek to manipulate God to get what we want to serve our own sinful desires. Have you, have you ever had the mentality, if I do these things, then God has to do these things for me? That's Saul. That's Saul seeking to do things, to inquire of God, to get things from God, to get God to do things for him. Have you ever thought, well, if I just give enough, I remember a story where, well, not a story, actually, it's um, my parents and I, we attended a church when I was um, uh, 18 years old, and, and I went to the church, and I heard a, a sermon by the pastor there, and, and he said that, you know, if, if, the, if you had financial difficulties, the reason you have financial difficulties is because you weren't giving, because if you just give enough on a regular basis, then God will bless you because he has to, essentially. And I went later to the pastor and... and asked him where I could see that in the word of God and ended up leaving the church because of that because his answer was, well, basically, when you're older, one day you'll understand. And, and, um, and, and that's a subtle meaning that many people have and, and that often, if you're, especially if you're raised in a, in a Christian at home, you can feel like if I live a certain way, then God's obligated to bless me or if I live a certain way, then things will go well with me, then everything's gonna be okay, right? If I live a certain way, then I won't suffer, I won't have hardship, I won't have difficulties and, and what are those things? That's living like Saul. There's a, there's a quote that I read by a guy named Bill Arnold in his application commentary on the NIV and he says, perfunctory obedience. That means obedience... You're doing it to get something. Perfunctory obedience of the standard means of grace even can come to represent the means by which we exact God's good favor. Let me read that again. Perfunctory obedience of the standard means of grace, maybe prayer, reading your Bible, giving, can come to represent the means by which we exact God's good favor. We try to get something out of God. In other words, some believers come to expect good things from God even believe that God owes them something because they, we, have fulfilled certain obligations. One's relationship with God can be quickly reduced to a sort of previously arranged agreement, a sort of quid pro quo. It means I do something and I get something back. In which all we have to do is keep our end of the bargain and God will be forced to keep his. You ever lived like that? I have. I've thought that way wrongly like Saul. I've lived that way wrongly like Saul. And he goes on, he says, so with Bible reading or tithing or befriending the unchurched or visiting shut-ins, all become a means to an end instead of a means of expressing our, our love for, adoration of, and thanks to God. Church attendance in such a view is transformed from a regular custom of worship to a means of ingratiating ourselves to God. 
a way of purchasing God's favor. Such abuses, the means of grace, are just as misguided as Saul's trip to Endor. I guess we can relate to Saul after all, can't we? Another application we can see in this passage that at first you might think, well, maybe we just see Saul in contrast to the Lord's anointed and we can contrast Saul and, and point to the difference between Saul and the difference between the Lord's anointed. But, but the Lord's anointed actually appears in this passage in the very beginning. In the first two verses, David actually appears here as the Lord's anointed and he is opposed to Saul. And, and, and I think that we can, we can make an application here and it's, it's possible it's possible to be opposed by the Lord's anointed. There's a day for all of us when we, like Saul, who have all gone astray, each of us gone our own way, all we we like sheep, we've all in some way fallen short of the glory of God, we've all pursued our own means, pursued our own ways of, of trying to get to God, to manipulate him, to get what we want, and for all of us there is a day, we, can, we know in the Bible, and the New Testament tells us there's a day when everyone will face the Lord's anointed, and the question though is whether or not you will be opposed by the Lord's anointed, because it's possible to be opposed by the Lord's anointed. We'll either face him, we hear to be rewarded by him, or we'll face him as he stands in opposition to us. There are no other options. All of us start off like Saul. So often I'm like Saul. All of us are living for ourselves at some point in time. All of us have been disobedient and opposed to God. Even those who are living outwardly pious lives but not living for God truly to know him, to be loved by him, to love him, are living like Saul. And we're all going to one day face the anointed one of God on the final day. And in either we will be found, there's two options for us. Either we'll be found trusting in him and in his righteousness that is not our own, or we will be found wanting and trusting in our own righteousness and we will give an account. Either we trust in God for our salvation and in Jesus and his sacrifice for us, the ultimate Lord's anointed one who came because we could not redeem ourselves. We were like Saul. We couldn't rescue ourselves. We couldn't even, we couldn't hear from God. We were dead in our sins completely. We were completely buried in our sins We were deaf, we were blind, we were unable to respond to God. We were Saul. We couldn't hear from God, and yet God sent his only son so that all those who hear the good news of him could be made alive, place their faith in him. Hear that that Jesus came to actually pay the price that we could not pay for all of our sins because all of us were like Saul. He came to, to take the punishment and the penalty for everything we've ever done, every way that we've committed witchcraft, every way that we've turned against God and not feared God, we feared other people, every way that we have sought to manipulate God, he said that he died for and he experienced a dark night of his own soul for us so that we don't experience the dark night of the soul like Saul. You know, Jesus... In his final hour, he cried out, and he says, in our place, in 
the place of all of us who are like Saul. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then what happened? Darkness fell on the entire land. It was a darkness that Christ experienced in our place. If you have placed your faith and trust in him, you don't have to be opposed by the Lord's anointed. But like Saul, there's a possibility in our day for those who willfully turn away from God. Hebrews 6, it warns us of a similar fate if you do not turn to him. It says it's impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away since they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt in this passage, it's a warning. Don't continually turn away from God. Don't refuse to listen to him. He'll become silent and his silence is deafening. But there is good news here. There is light in the the middle of this dark night. You see, the Lord's anointed, prior to his death, he he foretold his death, his his final hour. He had a last supper as well, but it was a very different last supper than we just read about. Saul's last supper led to death. Saul's trusting in himself, trusting in means other than God, led to death. But Jesus prepares a way, and he said that that when he gave his last supper to his disciples, he held out a a cup, and he said this this cup of of the vine, this this juice of the vine, it represents the new covenant in my blood. And all those who are trusting in my blood, my sacrifice, received this new covenant. And then he, and he, he broke the bread and he extended it out and he offered it. And he says, this represents me. I'm the bread of life. And all those who eat of me can receive everlasting life in me. And in Jesus' last supper, he offered a completely different hope, a completely different way. And, and Jesus didn't remain in his dark night. We don't have to be like Saul. All who genuinely call on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans tells us. All who call upon the name of the Lord, who place their trust in him, will be saved. We don't have to fear a death sentence. We don't have to fear that our life will end up like this. We can trust in the one who has endured the dark night of the soul for us. And we can participate together in, in his Last supper, like we did just a couple weeks ago, or was it last week? We can participate in, in, in that different last supper. We can, we can participate in receiving his new covenant. We can receive him who's the bread of life. We can put our trust and our hope in the Lord's anointed. We can, instead of falling down in fear, we can fall down before him and receive mercy. And fall at his, his feet and receive salvation. We can eat the bread of life, not what the world serves us. We can, we can listen to God's word and, and seek to live out our lives out of gratitude to him. It's a sobering passage, but it's a hope-filled passage. But here's the thing. There's no hope in ourselves. I think that's what we're meant to see. And then we're meant to look up. We're not left with this point in Scripture. We're not left with this passage 
We're left with Jesus who, who invites all who come to him to come and to participate in, in the wedding feast of the Lamb and to come and to participate in a wedding feast that is without a price. To, to drink of him and to eat of him and to enjoy him forever and be completely free. Amen? Well, let the band go ahead and come up. Joe, one of those songs you sang, I can't remember what it was. Um, I think it was perfect for the ending. But there was also a, a psalm that, that Colleen shared that I wanted to, to close with that I think was from God for us for today. In, in Psalm 118, it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. I'm so glad he set me free. He's delivered me from a life of Saul. And he can deliver you in your distress. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear, it says in verse 6. What can man do to me? The Lord's on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord to trust in princes. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, I pray that we would be appropriately sober, but Lord, I pray as well that we would we would throw off, we would cast off every weight which so easily entangles us and we would run with endurance to the race set before us knowing that we are free in you, knowing that we have new life in you, Jesus, that we have hope in you. We can have confidence in you, the one who endured the dark night of the soul in our place. I pray that for all of us we would be humbled and grateful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand.